You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, Episode 102. The Canadian immigration process can be complex and frustrating. With the Canadian Immigration Department making it virtually impossible to speak to an officer, there are a few places to turn to for trusted information. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest on immigration law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy, as he is joined by industry leaders across Canada, sharing insight to help you along your way. Well, hello again, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I am your host, Mark Holthy, and I'm here with my co-host, Alicia Backman-Bahari. How are you, Alicia? I am doing really well, Mark, and I'm excited for episode 102 because this is this is where most people fall, I find, when we're talking to employers. If you can't fit under those business visitor exemptions, you're probably in the world of needing a work permit. And the next question you have is, oh, no, do I need an LMIA? And our job is to find a way to not have to go down that path. So the International, international Mobility Program is a beautiful thing. And uh, so in this episode, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of go rapid fire through some of the options that are out there. By no means is this a comprehensive list, but some of the most common places that you want to look when you're first trying to determine if there is an exemption to a labor market impact assessment. So why don't you talk just briefly, Alicia, give a little bit of an overview on the International Mobility Program. And so it was a while ago, probably back around 2014, that immigration said, okay, well, we're going to call these two separate programs. We're going to have the International Mobility Program, and then we're going to have the Temporary Foreign Worker Program, and we're going to have two umbrellas. And under this umbrella for the International Mobility Program, one of the problems that immigration was having was there wasn't a lot of compliance overview or a mechanism for ESDC sometimes, Service Canada, to go and follow up on employers who were employing people that didn't have an LMIA. And so immigration said, well, hold the phone. We've got to make sure that we have public protections and employee protections for foreign nationals in place under both programs. So they formalized that and they said, yep, if you're under the temporary foreign worker program, you've got an LMIA, that's going to hold the employer to those obligations. But you know what? Same thing. Generally, if you're under that international mobility program and you have a specific employer, then we're still going to hold the employer to certain requirements and they're going to do that through these employer portals and the offer of employment, which used to be form IMM 5802 and is now online. Indeed. And when that was created, I became a very sad business immigration lawyer because it was (laughs) bliss, Alicia. We would get a call from a company. It would be maybe Thursday afternoon and they were traveling on Monday that was the kind ones when they actually gave me a day to sort things out. It wasn't like, oh, they're on the plane. But in those days, when we didn't have the employer portal, we could very quickly whip something together, have the employer sign off on the letter of support, make sure that the individual had their documents and and put a package together and arm them with it. And off they went and, and they could apply for their work permit rate at the port of entry. And it worked also really, really well when 
they didn't tell us at all and they truly were on the plane. And then sometimes officers would allow them to kind of sit in their chair while we scrambled to quickly connect with the HR managers and put packages together and email them to them. And then they could show the officer on the phone. And then, you know, the officers had some tools at their disposal. Um, And I'll take it one further level where the person showed up, didn't tell anyone. And the officer says, I think you need a work permit. Well, in those days, the border officers could actually issue them one. You know, they'd issue a C-10 significant benefit or something for a week or the two or three days they were in Canada and said, don't come back here unless you prepare a, you know, provide a better, a better package. And so those days were rough and tumble, but, but boy, in short, short timelines, we could fix just about anything. But the world has now changed. And so with the requirement to register in the employer portal, you know, there's a lot more detail they're asking for. And really, they're trying to mirror the temporary foreign worker program in terms of compliance, which is a whole different topic, which we will get into in future episodes. We're not going to dive too deep into that world. But, uh, but yeah, the world has definitely changed today. Absolutely. And it's really important for employers to know ahead of time that if they have to have filled out that employer portal, that they have to have an active account. They need to make sure that they have submitted that offer of employment and signed off on the employer declarations, which there are some real issues with that right now in terms of unique employment situations or situations where it's not an technical employment situation, um, that they have to have submitted that application. And the officer is going to ask people for two things, an A number, usually the first thing, and sometimes the O number, but mostly just the A number. And if, if you have no idea what an A number is, then listen on, because this is what we're talking about today. We are talking about offers of employment under the International Mobility Program, and that's where the employer portal fits in now. That A number is what you get. And I'll jump in here just quickly, Alicia. If you have done these in the past and it's been a while, please, please be aware that if you have any idea that you're going to be doing it here in the next little bit, um, you have to attempt to log in. And in many cases, the access may have timed out and it is painful. It's ugly. Maybe you've had employees that have moved on. Maybe you're the new HR manager for a company and you're trying to resurrect all this. We can help you to navigate it through it, navigate through it for sure. uh, If you're running into those issues, but please be aware that the access, if it's not used for whatever, just, I don't know, infinite wisdom of our government, they have caused um, caused it to time out after a certain period of time. So be aware of that because it's a royal pain trying to get it set up and you need to plan accordingly. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, let's dive so in, Alicia. Uh, oh yeah, you were going to yeah. talk about the A number. Yeah, I, please. I was just going to say the A number. The mm. A number is what you get after you've gone on, put that employer offer of employment through the employer portal. It'll give you a, an a number that starts with the letter A and has a number of digits. And then also you have to pay that employer compliance fee of $230, which you will have a receipt, an order receipt number, which starts with an O. And those two things are required. So technically, Mark, you know, if somebody didn't give us any notice and we were able to help them with their employer portal application at the very last second, as long as they have that A number and O number before they get to the border, technically there's a chance that their employee will get that work permit. Yeah, we call that the faint hope clause. And, uh, and yeah, and, and it's interesting as, you know, as you, as you look at this process, they've really, like we said, tried to mirror the LMIA process. So when you look on the work permit, when it's employer specific, 
It'll either have the LMIA number or it'll have the A number in that same section on the work permit, which will basically tell you if you're a new work, uh, an employer looking to hire a new worker and you're looking at their work permit in that box, if it's open and there's nothing in there, then it's truly open and you can hire them without restrictions. And then, but normally if there is something in that box, then uh, obviously if it names another employer, <laughs> that's, that's a warning sign you can't hire them, but, but be careful, but that's how it's structured. Okay, well, oh yes, any other last little kind of intros before we dive into the uh, different programs? Yeah, I was just going to say you're exactly right, Mark, because under the IMP, it is a little bit confusing. Some of these are open work permit situations, and some of them are not. Some of them are tied to a specific employer. It's only if you have a situation that's tied to a specific employer that the employer has to do that employer portal. If you fall under the IMP and it's an open work permit, that's that the employee is eligible for, then there's no employer portal piece. So we are talking about IMP. IMP covers open work permit and employer specific work permit situations. Perfect. All right, let's dive into some of the specific programs. And remember, this is going to be kind of a rapid fire. We're not going to dive into a great depth, but what we want to do is just create awareness here. So that when you're listening to this podcast and you know, you're, you've got a worker that's going in and, and they, you know, you know the situation and you think, okay, uh, or you're looking to hire someone from abroad and, uh, and you, you understand the facts of your situation, you know, hopefully this will give you just enough information to kind of whet your appetite and, and to realize, you know, to spot kind of, hey, there might be a work permit about this. I remember that podcast that Mark and Alicia did. And, uh, and so we will um, in the future have individual episodes on these topics, but um, that's the purpose of this little intro session on, uh, on, um, work permits that are required. Um, but they are LMIA exempt. Okay. Where would you like to start Alicia? So I think I'd like to start and just talk about what free trade agreements we might be looking at here. So it is important to figure out the nationality of your potential employee. That's one of the first questions I ask employers what is the nationality of your employee and do they have multiple nationalities because some people they might have shown the employer one passport but they actually oh yeah my dad was born in whatever country and i'm also a citizen of right so ask them because there might be an option under one of these free trade agreements to be able to bring your employee in under a work permit that does not require an L uh, an LMIA. So the countries that you want to be asking about, the nationalities you want to be inquiring about, there is a free trade agreement between Canada and Chile. There's a free trade agreement between Canada and Peru, Canada and Colombia, Canada and Korea. There's the Canada-EU Comprehensive Economic and Trade Agreement, so CETA. There's the Agreement on Trade Continuity between Canada and the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. There's also GATS, which is the General Agreement on Trade and Services. That one's really specific. Usually it's only 90 days, not super helpful. But there's also the Canada-Panama Free Trade Agreement. And then there is the comprehensive and progressive treatment for trans-Pacific partnerships. So we are talking Australia, Japan, Mexico, and Peru. And this one, they may add actual, actually other countries too. So we'll have to keep an eye on that one. And then the granddaddy of them all. Don't forget that one. And then... Absolutely. The one that most of the time we're looking at for North America is the Canada-US-Mexico Free Trade Agreement, which used to be called NAFTA, might be called CUSMA, CUMSA, but the acronym might be different if you're in the US. Perfect. 
Okay, so when we're talking about these free trade agreements, there's some kind of general principles associated with them. You know, in most cases, they they tend to target more professional occupations, although there are some, um, you know, specialized specialized service providers and specialized trades that are built into some of them. Um, the best part about these is that you have employers who, with a job offer alone, uh, and a, a written paper, they they can and uh, registering that job offer within the International Mobility Program, they can they as long as the person meets the requirements of the particular category that's stipulated in the free trade agreement, then you can avoid all the headache of advertising and 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 you know all of the steps that are required, which we will get into in future episodes here uh, to get an LMIA. You can avoid those. So. You know, as long as the person has the, the professional qualifications or whatever the, um, the work experience that's necessary, the education, then um, a letter from an employer as well as the uh, International Mobility Program, proof that the worker qualifies is usually sufficient to submit that work permit application. It's a lot, you know, there, there's a lot involved with it, but, um, you know, this is basically the principle that applies to the vast majority of these free trade agreements. Yeah, and... The other thing I should definitely mention here is in addition to asking which nationality your employee is, you're also going to be asking some screening questions. So Mark touched upon eligibility, but there's also the um, the hydra of admissibility, right? So there is the possibility that the person you want to hire is not being super forthcoming about the fact that they might have had a driving under the influence charge, or maybe they had some sort of minor assault or vandalism or some sort of criminality in their past, or they may have applied to immigration and not been truthful in the past. And that is something that you really want to make sure to screen before you go down the road of offering somebody this job. So be really careful about that. Check where they're from. Check for admissibility. So check for criminality, potential medical inadmissibility, misrepresentation in the past, visa refusals in the past. And then you can start looking at all these categories under the IMP. Yeah, exactly. And with the, uh, you know, with these free trade agreements, often they'll have a list of occupations as well. And so if your work is potentially within that list and meets those requirements, then like Alicia said, and they've passed those initial admissibility things that are really, really important. And we find that the admissibility issues come up, um, they come up with more surprise in under the International Mobility Program than they typically do the LMIA process. Why? Because the LMIA process is so long we usually have lots of opportunities to connect with the workers and talk with them, whereas the IMP tends to be rough and tumble and fast and we need people moving right away. And so sometimes, unless we're really careful and we ask those questions, um, I've had calls, Alicia, and I'm sure you have too, at the border when someone has arrived and the, and, and the border officer says, Mark, did you know that this person had a prior conviction and I uh, can't approve the work permit today? And I'm like, no, I was not aware of that. And neither was the global mobility manager either aware of that. And so you have to ask the questions because there's nothing worse than, you know, especially with port of entry applications being surprised at the last minute. Typically, when individuals are going through, um, you know, with the various free trade agreements in the source country, some are LMIA, sorry, some are visa exempt and some require a visa, which forces you to go through and submit an application online through the, well, in the old world, we describe it as a consular process, but, uh, but 
they tend to be a little bit more thorough in their examination of, of individuals than the border officers are at the port of entry, which is another little pro tip. If you can avoid the having to file online and your worker is, you know, a little bit risk tolerant. In other words, they're able to speak on their feet and, and uh, describe the process and defend their need for their work permit, then you know, we always advise the port of entry is a, is a better route to go. But uh, we'll talk more about this as we continue on through these episodes as well. Yeah, and one thing I'll touch on just briefly when you're talking about that is we've got a potential conflict of interest, right? We're lawyers here, and if we are advising the employer and we're also advising the employee, we want to make sure that we've got a good joint retainer agreement in place because it is really important that, you know, that employee and the employer both know that when they tell us that they've got criminality, that that has to be disclosed to all parties. And in the event of an actual conflict of interest, you know, what's going to happen. And so make sure that if you are practicing in this area, you're looking out for those potential conflict of interest situations and you have a plan for dealing with it. But the ethics here are really important. Um, but I do want to get back to under the free trade agreements, there are some buckets that you should be looking for, and those would be professionals. So there are lists under each of those free trade agreements as who qualifies for a professional. Some of them are negative lists and some of them are positive lists. So if you're on the list, you're in, but some of them are if you're on the list, you're not in. So be careful because that can trip up people a little bit. Uh, also, in terms of professionals, as the main category, there are also traders and investors. Um, there's also technicians under some of the free trade agreements in addition to professionals. And then there's also specialized knowledge workers or senior managers under intra-company transfers. So these are kind of the buckets that we're searching for when we're looking at somebody's history in terms of their experience and their position in a, in a company outside of Canada. And that's a really good segue, Alicia, into our next category, which is the intercompany transfer. And uh, as you've alluded to, there are provisions under the general you know, regulations um, in the Immigration Refugee Protection Regulations, as well as within the free trade agreements themselves. So sometimes there may be f- more favorable terms in a free trade agreement that that are not in the, the general provisions of, of the, uh, the Act and the regulations. Uh, so you need to be aware of both of them. And so did you want to touch a little bit on the ICTs, kind of introdu- introduce it? Now, it's obviously, it's it's pretty pretty transparent what we're talking about here, intra-company transfer. But why don't you um, flush it out a little bit, Alicia? Yeah. So one thing that I will mention too is, and Mark touched upon this at the end of our last podcast a little bit, but immigration in its infinite wisdom decided to rename all these LMIA exemption codes. And so we're not talking law here, we're talking about IRCC's internal coding that they use kind of as a shorthand for officers to refer to when people come to the border. And it used to be that we had LMIA exemption codes that everybody kind of could rattle off. Well, they changed all those as of December 15th, 2022. Uh, So if you have not gone over. (laughs) Gotta get up with the lingo apparently. It's true. If you've not gone over, and this is the cheat sheet, as you go over to LMIA exemption codes and IRCC, go check it out. Make sure that you are up to date because all those codes have changed as of December 15th, 2022. 
most of them, C10 and C20 actually are still the same, thank goodness, but a lot of them are different. So when you're looking at those specialized knowledge or executive or senior managerial ICT codes, they are actually different now. Um, but if you go over and take a look at, all right, who qualifies for an intra-company transfer work permit? A lot of people don't realize that it has to be work for a affiliated corporation outside of Canada for at least a year in a similar occupation. And so this is fundamental. If you don't meet this, then ICT is not for your employee. So make sure that they have been employed for an affiliated company and you've got to show that relationship. So is it a parent company? Is it a sister company? Is it a subsidiary? And show how that works because there has to be a, a dotted line between those organizations. That's kind of requirement number one. And then the other thing is making sure that they fit within one of those buckets of specialized knowledge or senior managerial. And depending on the free trade agreement, there's little nuances in terms of uh, what the buckets are. And so some of them are a little bit different than what they are under the CUSMA. So take a look to make sure because everybody tries to come in under these intracompany transfers and they may not realize that what they do on a day-to-day -day or regular basis really matters in terms of whether they're going to get approved. Absolutely. I can, I can think of examples. It, it happens a lot, the confusion, when you're dealing with American and, and Canadian companies and you'll have someone who will be coming in, maybe they're an engineer or something by trade, but they're actually a VP over something. And we're so used to using KUSMA, the professional category, the moment we see an engineering degree, we think, okay, great. You know, this is probably, they'll be able to come in under that category. And there are some cases where you can be an engineering manager and still go through, for instance. But when you, once you reach up into the executive level and a person is coming into Canada, um, they're no longer on the, on the professional list. There is no manager within the professionals list under KUSMA, for example. And we'll just use that because that's what a lot of people will be experiencing. So you have to watch carefully. And then if that's the case, then you have to then turn to the intercompany transfer. And as uh, Alicia alluded to, you know, there's senior executives, there's senior managerial, um, that kind of C-suite level. And then there's what we call specialized knowledge. And that is a whole discussion, once again, all in and of itself. But, you know, advanced level with something that, you know, is, is a proprietary kind of component, this knowledge that they have, um, it's not easy to define that. And uh, we found over the years that immigration and the border officers are increasingly raising that bar as to what specialized knowledge is. Now, it may not be the level of a rocket scientist, but it may also not be someone who is a manager that's just been working in the company for a long time. So those are all the things that we sort through uh, when we have these discussions with our clients. Yeah, and, and just to summarize, Mark, so when we are looking at these free trade agreements, these are employer specific. So this is something where you do have to have that employer portal declaration and the company has to have been properly registered. They've got to pay that $230 compliance fee. They need that A number, they need that O number, and your employee has to fit within all the parameters of that free trade agreement. So it's really important to get that right. Keep in mind that some of those free trade 
trade agreements actually have provisions for the spouse of the principal applicant. So in some circumstances under those free trade agreements, the person is able to bring their spouse under an open spousal work permit. And an open spousal work permit is one of the big categories under the IMP that is open, that doesn't require an employer portal support. And sometimes that's a big draw for employees to be able to say, yeah, I'm going to uproot my life and come to Canada. Not all of the free trade agreements actually allow those open spousal work permits. Sometimes the spouse has to independently qualify, but take a look to make sure, can you get your principal applicant? And then is there a spousal provision? Exactly. And that's, uh, you know, when it comes to intercompany transfers, we've kind of covered at a high level what they are, but let's talk a little bit more about those spousal open work permits. Um, there's, there's change in the wind when it comes to other work permits for family members as well. And, uh, you know, years ago at the same time, 2014, it's funny how it all started with that and we're circling back around. There were some really nice provisions that allowed, you know, in some cases, adult dependent children, like 18 to, to 21 essentially. And in some provinces, even as, as young as 16 uh, dependents, to, to get open work permits. And then there were, there was changes. Anytime the labor, labor market starts to tighten up and Canadians can't find jobs, then these, you know, these provisions, um, uh, tend to be the first ones to, to be canceled. So we're now in a world where, you know, which is 2023 when we're recording this podcast, where, um, the government is now reconsidering opening these things up. So maybe you can chat a little bit about that, Alicia. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who are following the legislation in terms of what we're talking about when we're going through all these provisions, we're looking at Regulation 204 and 205 primarily. There are some situations under 206, 207, 208. Those tend to be more rare and specific. But so under Regulation 204, that's where a lot of those free trade agreements come in. Regulation 205 are regulations for public policy, competitiveness, and reasons why you want to make sure that Canada stays kind of viable in the international market. And one of them is bringing in spouses. So spousal provisions are under Regulation 205, where you want to be able to encourage people to bring their families with them when they come. And so open spousal work permits are key, I believe, for a lot of people to be able to move to Canada in a longer term fashion. And yeah, we've been hearing from Minister Fraser and Immigration Department that they are looking at not only keeping it quite as restrictive as they used to have it for certain categories of applicants for open spousal work permits, but also looking to extend that ability to work to older children. So. We will see how exactly that plays out. They've said they're going to do it. They haven't given us kind of the public policy breakdown on the implementation yet, but it does seem like that is coming relatively soon. And the general principle, yeah, yeah. The general principle is Go ahead. you can have an open spousal work permit as long as you're a high skilled worker. And this is where it may be changing that other types of applicants might be able to bring their spouse as well. And this is something that trips up a lot of applicants, specifically when they did a post-grad work permit application. That's another circumstance where you could have an open work permit. So somebody has completed their studies in Canada, they've got their study permit, they made sure to go to a designated learning institution, they made sure their program of studies was eligible for a post-grad work permit. And then once they have graduated, they submit their application for a post-grad work permit. 
that person generally needs to be working in a high-skilled job and prove that they're in a high-skilled job. So under the old NOC system, it was NOC O, A, or B. Under the current tier system, it's NOC 0, 1, 2, or 3. But normally, they would have to prove that they had a high-skilled job before they could apply or have their spouse apply for an open spousal work permit. Under these new potential rules from immigration, most people will be able to apply for that open spousal work permit even if they're not showing on that postgrad that it's a high-skilled job that the principal applicant has. So that's what's changing. Yeah, and that's a huge, huge development. Really, it is. One additional thing I want to make HR managers aware of is when you are submitting these work permits or helping to put these packages together for your workers, you've got a principal applicant that's working in a skilled position, we'll say right now. We'll see what the future holds here in the next couple months. And they want their spouse to work. Sometimes their spouse will be working in areas where they need an immigration medical. And when these open work permits are issued, if um, an immigration medical has not previously been obtained, then there are restrictions placed on those open work permits. And we see this a lot in healthcare. So an individual, maybe you've got a spouse that's a nurse and wants to work and, you know, maybe they come from the U.S. where it's not too difficult to get their uh, nursing um, credentials accepted by the uh, provincial associations. And uh, But if their work permit is restricted and it specifically says not allowed to work in healthcare or whatever, um, then that can be a huge surprise for, for uh, spouses that feel they can just work wherever. You know, for example, childcare, working with small children, things like that. So there are those factors to take into consideration. And so it pays to, to have that conversation with spouses just to confirm that they're not going to be working in uh, an occupation that would require an immigration medical. Otherwise, you need to do that in advance. And that's for the principal applicant too, right? There's some situations where an immigration medical upfront is required. And sometimes it's because of the type of job that you want your your employee to work in Canada. If you're dealing with vulnerable populations, children, the elderly, healthcare related, but also if your employee happens to have been residing in a country that's on the designated list. And so if you happen to have had an employee that's coming from a country where TB tends to be an issue, for example, there might be a medical requirement up front and that can really throw a wrench in the works if you're not aware of that as an HR manager before that person gets their work permit issued and all of a sudden the work permit has these conditions that they can't do work in the industry that you need them to do work in. And the general point here too is when your employee gets that work permit, it is so important for that employee to look at every single number and word on that document and make sure it is correct before they leave that port of entry. Yeah, it's a nightmare trying to correct it, you guys. When the work permit has been issued and there's been a problem with it. Maybe they've, uh, you know, put the location of work in a, in a place that isn't correct or it wasn't as broad as you were hoping. That can really trip up a lot of people. Uh, but you, yeah, the, the opportunity to fix things are right when you're there because it is so difficult to get things changed and corrected after the fact. And yes, we can work through that and we can help you with that, but you want to try to avoid that at all costs. All right. Well, you can see as we go through all these programs, Alicia, time goes quickly. Let's take a little break here and then we'll get right back into, we'll touch briefly on the postgrad work permits, talk a little bit about the International Experience Canada, those programs, and, uh, and then wrap up with some unique cases. How does that sound? Perfect. Perfect. 
This episode of the Canadian Immigration Podcast is sponsored by the Canadian Immigration Institute, one of the best sources of video content on Canadian immigration to help you navigate your way through the Canadian immigration process. Head on over to the YouTube channel where there's tons of video content and you can join Mark, yes, myself, in a number of live video streams, Q&As, all designed to help you navigate your way through this crazy Canadian immigration process. When you're done there, like and subscribe and then head on over to the CanadianImmigrationInstitute.com where you can find all those awesome DIY courses that I've been talking about. Thank you, Canadian Immigration Institute. You are the sponsor of this amazing little podcast. All right, I'm back here with my co-pilot, Alicia Backman-Bahari, and we are talking about work permits that are LMIA exempt. All right, let's jump into, very briefly, the world of post-grad work permits and uh, transition from there. So fill our employers in on what these are and what they need to be aware of. Mm -hmm. So employers should know that if an employee comes to them and they have a document and it says open under employer or it says any under who the employer can be and there's a line down at the bottom and it talks about post-grad work permit or PGWP then they're going to make sure that in fact you know this person does have their post-grad work permit and it's valid so take a look at the expiry date those post-grad work permits are open so it means that there is no employer portal piece the employer if they see that work permit it's valid it's it looks all correct and it's still um, in force then they should be able to employ that person a post-grad work permit means that that employee has studied in Canada, has completed an eligible program of study. It has to be at least eight months in duration. It has to be at a designated learning institute or institution called the DLI. And the program that they took has to be PGWP eligible. If they did all that and they completed and graduated and they have their letter of completion, their diploma, their transcripts, they apply for their postgrad work permit, Here's where it gets a little bit complicated. Sometimes they don't have the document yet. All they have is proof that they actually submitted the application. And technically, they're also authorized to work in that circumstance because of Regulation 186 that allows a person who applied for their postgrad work permit properly within a certain period of time of graduating to be able to work full-time up until they get a decision on that PGWP. So if somebody has said, yes, I've graduated, you're gonna wanna make sure that they have confirmation from the school, that they can prove to you that they submitted that application properly for the PGWP. Normally they'll have a screenshot that they can show you or maybe an application number showing that they submitted it in time. And technically they are authorized to work full-time until they get a decision back from IRCC. Exactly. And one other thing that we haven't addressed yet is the ability to extend these permits. And throughout all of these, you know, KUSMA, other free trade agreements, intercompany transfers, you always need to pay attention to whether or not these work permits can be extended. Postgrad work permits, generally speaking, cannot be extended. So if you are hiring a postgrad work permit, you need to take very, very uh, keen attention to when that work permit is expiring and start developing a plan. If there's someone that you really love and you want to keep, then maybe you might have to transition to an LMIA, which 
we will be covering in future episodes, or maybe there's a pathway to permanent residence, which may also be available, which then triggers other work permits, which we'll get to, such as the bridging open work permit. But just pay attention to that. Watch, and uh, if you have any questions, obviously we're always here to help and, and provide whatever direction. But let's slide over to students and young people that are outside of Canada who may be a good source of, you know, of, of labor as well under the International Experience Canada. Mm -hmm. So IEC International Experience Canada is a program that is fairly competitive. Right now we're in January of 2023, and this is a prime time for employers to look at the IEC as a source of skilled workers. So it has to be usually 18 to 35 year olds depending on the country, they have slightly different age requirements. So there's a, a bilateral agreement between Canada and the listed countries. Not all countries are on the list. It tends to be countries that are often visa exempt. So take a look at that list. And sometimes there is a working holiday open provision. So there's no employer that has to support it. So under that circumstance, if you have an IEC applicant under the working holiday provisions, you don't have to do really very much as an employer as long as that person gets into the pool, gets accepted. But you could if you want to support them in their immigration journey. The next thing that you look at is there might be, other than the working holiday, there might be a co-op or an internship type of work permit that may require you to go on and do something as an employer. Or there might also be a young professional category. Not all three categories are available to citizens of every country. Sometimes citizens only have one option, the working holiday, and they don't always have the um, internship or the young professional. So take a look at the IEC for potential employees. Sometimes it's open, sometimes it's employer specific. Yes. And timing is everything, you guys. These fill up super fast. And if you're not preparing literally before you know the year ends for for when they open up again you may find that the allotted spaces are all filled up and you don't have that option any longer okay let's uh, maybe wrap up with some of the unique cases and once again we're just going to address these very very uh, you know very summarily and we will dig in a lot a lot deeper in future episodes but um, let's talk about bridging open work permits how do those work and this is one where it's a little bit heartbreaking because people who have their status coming to an end, their work permits expiring, their employer didn't realize that they needed to go get an LMIA and start that recruitment process months ago. Sometimes they say, hey, can I get this bridging open work permit? And they don't realize that in most circumstances, no, a bridging open work permit is only available to somebody if they have already submitted a complete application for permanent residence. And there are different permanent resident programs, but the most common one tends to be express entry. And unless somebody has actually gone into the pool, been selected with an invitation to apply, has actually completed their electronic application for permanent residence and has that application receipt number that they can show that it was finally submitted, Unless that has happened, they are not eligible for that bridging open work permit. A lot of people just think, oh, I put my profile in the express entry pool. I'm eligible for a bridging open work permit. That is not so. So be careful if your employee is looking to get a bridging open work permit that they have actually been accepted, given an invitation to apply, and finally submitted that EAPR. All right. Okay, let's transition to one of the 
probably most favorable work permits in this world of, of unique work permits that in every single case is, is almost the best route to take. And that is the, uh, the, the Francophone program, the Francophone mobility program for work permits. So, yeah. So yeah, exactly. Mobility, um, so mobilité francophone or francophone mobility program, it has to be that you are employing somebody outside of the province of Quebec. So cannot be inside of Quebec employment, must be outside of Quebec. Then the next thing is that it's not just somebody who has learned French on the side. It has to be that the person can prove that they are a French speaker from birth and that French is their language of daily use. So habitual language of habitual use, which if you're in India and you've learned French and you're, you've got good scores, I'm sorry that, you know, in most cases, people don't use French as their language of habitual use in India. You're not going to be eligible for this program. Now there may be other options through permanent residence to get benefit from that French language, which We'll probably have a podcast on that as well, but yeah, this is really geared to, yeah, to, to the work permit world. Yeah. But if you have an employee who might be from Morocco or any other French speaking country, or who has the ability to show that they did their education in French and most cases they need to have that French language exam. So when you put that mobilité francophone application in, you'll want to have that employee give you a TEF or a TCF exam. And in this one again is employer specific. So yes, you've got to go through the employer portal, get that A number and the O number, prove that it's a valid offer of employment. Okay. We're going to transition to another one. It's our C20s. So you've got a situation where the person hasn't maybe been working with you for one year in your company and you want to transfer them to Canada. How could potentially the reciprocal work permit, the C20, be beneficial for these multinational companies? Mm -hmm. So you've got to show that there's reciprocity. You have to show that you have other employees who are Canadian employees going to your international operations and doing work. And you've got to show that relationship back and forth. So it can't just be that the Canadian company is bringing in workers all the time. There have to be Canadian workers that are going to affiliated corporations outside of Canada and doing work. And you'll want to track that. So make sure you keep spreadsheets of who's going, when, what kind of position, what kind of seniority, how long are they going? Yeah. And it's not, if you have small numbers of people moving back and forth, you're usually okay. But once you start to think about moving larger numbers, then there's kind of a ratio that they start to look at. And, you know, if you're bringing in a hundred people into Canada, then really they want to see that the people coming in are maybe 25% of the people that are going out. And there's a little bit of a ratio there. And they also like to see that there's some form of a global mobility policy that the officers can look at that shows that this is a contemplated deliberate process of giving Canadians opportunities abroad to learn and grow and the company experience, you know, different, uh, different regions and then bring that back to Canada. And in the same process, it allows for, you know, foreign workers to come into Canada and, and get acclimatized. And it's kind of like a cross pollination of, of skills and abilities uh, throughout the, throughout the company. And interestingly, Alicia, this is something that I always love to tell um, my Canada US companies, the US based ones, because they don't have anything that's really like this on the US side. On the Canadian side, when I tell them, hey, this reciprocal thing is really sweet, you know, this usually causes companies to perk up and think, hmm, that's interesting. So, but it's definitely reciprocity is required and you need to ensure Canadians are transferring abroad. 
Okay, let's jump to the significant benefit. So this is kind of like the Hail Mary of work permits, the C10. <laughs> so. Yep. These are unique circumstances by definition. So it's significant benefit, but you can't just say it's a significant benefit. You've got to say it's a significant economic benefit, or it's a significant social benefit, or it's a significant significant cultural benefit. So there are some definitions in the legislation here. Take a look at Regulation 205 sub A. And so you've got to ground this in something that is really going to be contributing to the Canadian economy, the Canadian culture, um, something that is very outside of the ordinary where you've got a really key person that needs to come to Canada for a very specific purpose. Absolutely. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of different ways in which this has been used. And often one of the ones that is more of a sure kind of thing is when you've got an LMIA already in the, in the queue and you've got an, a senior executive that you need to come into Canada and you need something to bridge the gap and get them here quick before the LMIA is approved. So that's kind of an example. But, you know, it's, it's, it's an opportunity for you to be creative and use your, use your skills. And, you know, as an HR manager, you know, us immigration lawyers have had a little bit of uh, opportunity experimenting with this program, but when we put our heads together, sometimes we can come up with some creative solutions and yeah, I've gotten a C10 in the past for, uh, uh, <laughs> the manager of a tanning salon here in West Lethbridge. And I won't go into all the details here, but you know, anything is possible. Um, but it is, it's definitely not a slam dunk. And anytime you've got a kind of a Hail Mary option, sometimes it gets abused. And, and so you have to be quite careful with that. All right, let's wrap up with the final one that we have that we're going to talk about, which is the Quet visa, which is really, that work permit is really a unique one based on the circumstances that uh, are going on with the um, uh, Russian and Ukraine, that war. So uh, maybe you want to touch on that. Yeah, so people who are Ukrainian nationals and can show that they are Ukrainian nationals are able to apply for the CUAET open work permit. And again, this should be granted to older children as well as the parents of, of uh, on who are Ukrainian. And so make sure that you can actually um, take a look at that work permit, that it's valid for the time that you want to employ the person under that CUAET. Hopefully there will be extensions and people will be able to apply for extensions. Um, we will see what happens because technically that CUAET work permit is scheduled to expire in March 2023. So if people don't already have it, they should be looking at making sure to apply for it right away. And then the other last, last one was that public policy open mm. work permit. And while we said that there are no PGWP extensions, to my frustration, everybody calls it that. And it's not technically an extension under the public policy. It's just a public policy. It was like people who had an existing PGWP were eligible for it because of the pandemic. It was issued for 18 months. There was one that was issued in 2021. There was another program that was implemented in 2022. Technically, the government said you couldn't double dip. And there hasn't been any announcement on anything for 2023. There we have it. Well, that has been a very, very fulsome episode, episode 102. And uh, we are very excited. In the next episode, we're going to dive into, well, when you can't find an exemption, you got to just deal with it. So the next series of episodes, uh, starting with our next one, episode 103, 
We're going to start off with an overview of the temporary foreign worker program, and then we're going to dive in a little bit deeper because like it or not, you need to understand how this works because it is a tool in the toolbox, even though it might be a little bit duller than, uh, than some of the other tools, it is there for you. So stay tuned for that and uh, we'll see you in the next episode. As always, subscribe, let people know about this. If you like it, leave a review on iTunes or one of the other ones if you feel this uh, information is helpful. And um, Healthy Immigration Law is our law firm. And anytime you need any extra assistance or help, give us a call. All right. Thanks, Alicia. Thanks, Mark. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, your trusted source for information on Canadian immigration law policy and practice. If you would like to book a legal consultation, please visit www.holtylaw.com. You can also find lots more helpful information on our Canadian Immigration Institute YouTube channel, where you can join Mark on one of his many Canadian Immigration Live Q&As. See you soon, and all the best as you navigate this crazy world we call Canadian Immigration. Yeah.